Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 13th of March, 2023, a little bit after one o'clock. Apologies for the slight interruption there. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. We're delighted to be joined by David Scott, bringing us Northern Exposure from north of the border. And also Mark Anderson reporting from the United States. Uh, David, we're going to get uh, straight on here with the Silicon Valley Bank. And uh, what you've Leading off with a graphic. Context. This is a graphic that shows all of the United States bank failures to uh, since the year 2000. And gosh, there have been quite a lot. But we see here the two big ones, uh, Washington Mutual at $307 billion and Silicon Valley Bank at $209 billion, uh, dominate uh, this picture. And this is the second largest bank failure in United States history. And... Uh, obviously, 209 billion is not what it used to be, but uh, in at least nominal terms. And that gives you an idea of the scale of the problem. Uh, David, we should just say um, very quickly uh, that, that uh, of course, the situation is slightly different in the UK because uh, lots of independent banks in the United States. If we were to consider in the UK the number of bank branches that have been closed by the big four high street banks, uh, we may have a similar picture. Maybe. And, and there are significant differences between the United States and, and the UK in this particular area, because this is a bank that served, uh, that served the tech sector, which is huge in America in terms of the, the amount of the stock market value devoted to that, and is tiny in Britain. In Britain, the thing that matters most is the financial sector, and there is always a very rapid uh, uh, response from the Bank of England, from, from regulators, whenever that one's threatened. And we're seeing a somewhat similar response from the American regulators to uh, defend the tech sector, which was uh, hugely reliant on this particular bank. Yeah, OK, now we've got a little bit of video here and uh, maybe we should need to put a bit of context on it because it is from Mary Poppins. It shows a bank run, but I mean, I think the main point here is how little it takes to get one of these things going. Yeah, I mean, it was a wonderful piece of film. Um, so the, the, the background here is a small boy goes in and he's got tuppence and he wants to buy some bird seed to feed the birds at the park. And the bank manager finds out he's got tuppence and he wants it to be invested. And there's a, there's a dispute between the bank manager and the boy and the bank manager eventually grabs the money. The boy's not happy, shouts that he wants his money back and then things start happening. Now, the, the truth that this is referring to is the, is the problem that all banks face, every bank faces, that it's, that it's uh, borrows short and lends long. The time element on its lending out is very long term, uh, but almost all of it's borrowing. And it's when we deposit money with the bank, it is borrowing funds from us. Legally, that's what's happening. They tend to be very short term or very often immediate on-demand deposits. So if everyone turns up at one time and wants the money, uh, they don't get it because it's a liquidity problem. It's called the bank run, a glorious thing and lampooned here beautifully in uh, Mary Poppins. Give it back! Give me back the money! Something's wrong. The bank won't give someone their money. Well, I'm going to get mine. Come along, young man. Every penny in mine. And mine too. And give me mine too. Stop all payments. 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 Stop all payments.
And David, while that's mildly amusing, of course, it hasn't been amusing over the last few days for many of the people that are have been customers of this particular bank. And, you know, they have needed to get money out in order to pay salaries. And in the US, people paid on a weekly or two weekly basis often. So this is this is problematic. They don't have time to wait. Indeed, this is the case. And of course, we've seen outflows from the bank in the billions, 40 odd billion in what, an hour? You know, so uh, it's it, it was vast. And of course, the, the modern technology we have now means everything happens so much more quickly. Um, and the bank went from, uh, well, you're going to this in detail shortly, but it went from being solvent to insolvent um, within a day or so. And uh, the regulators and everyone else was left uh, running around trying to sort out the mess, trying to respond with very little time to do so. Uh, so, okay, so let's just have a look at, at what did happen. So here's the uh, statement on the SVB website. On Friday, March the 10th, 2023, Silicon Valley Bank, Santa Clara, California, was closed by the California uh, Department of Financial Protection and Innovation. Subsequently, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation was named receiver. No advance notice is given to the public when a financial institution is closed. To, to protect the depositors, the FDIC created the Deposit Insurance National Bank of Santa, Santa Clara to allow depositors access their insured deposits in time to open accounts at other insured institutions. Now, of course, if you're a business, uh, the level of insurance which is offered, which in fact in the United States is significantly better than the UK because it's $250,000 over here as opposed to 75, 80,000 pounds here, whatever it is. Uh, for a business, that's not a huge amount of money because of course they've got multiple salaries to pay and so on. So look, let's look at, uh, at what led up to this. So the question is what happened? Uh, and so uh, basically what happened was this, uh, during the pandemic, SVB experienced a massive inflow of deposits and their deposits jumped from $61.76 billion at the end of 2019 to $189.2 billion at the end of 2021. Uh, as these deposits grew, SVB could not expand their loan book fast enough. So in other words, they couldn't lend the money out quickly enough. And so uh, it's, uh, holding cash is never going to make them any money. So they wanted to invest this cash. They decided to do that uh, by buying over $80 billion worth of mortgage-backed securities. Now, remember, mortgage-backed securities are the uh, financial instrument which caused the 2007-2008 crash, or at least was at the core of that. Uh, these assets, in inverted commas, went onto their hold to maturity portfolio. Now, uh, the assets, mortgage-backed securities, uh, basically mature at a certain date and you get your money back plus whatever the uh, interest on that is at that maturity date. But of course, you can trade those mortgage-backed securities in the meantime. Uh, and so long as circumstances are right, you might still make a little bit of money. But if circumstances go wrong, you don't. So here's what happened next. 97% uh, of these mortgage-backed securities were 10-year or greater maturity. So these SVB attempted to hold uh, this stuff on their books for a very long time uh, as illiquid uh, resources. Uh, but in the meantime, the Federal Reserve Bank raised interest rates all the way through 2022 and continued to do so in the first quarter of 2023. So the value of SVB's mortgage-backed security assets uh, fell sharply because U.S. Treasury bonds now provided two and a half times the yield that the MBS did. Uh, so then what happened was, or at least this would not have been a problem so long as SVB maintained their deposits. 
uh, since they would receive the full value of the MBS at maturity after the 10-year period. Um, but the higher Fed interest rates also reduced the appetite for uh, initial public offerings, so setting up share issues for many startups uh, and made it more expensive for these startups to raise funds privately. And so some of these startup clients began pulling money out of SVB to meet their liquidity needs because they, had, they needed money in the meantime. Uh, so then what happened was that SVB, in order to meet these liquidity needs, uh, was forced to sell 21 billion pounds of their available for sale at, uh, securities. And that was at a $1.8 billion loss. Uh, and then they announced that they needed to raise a further 2.25 billion in equity. And this apparently, this further 2.25 billion requirement came as a complete surprise to investors. And so the bank run began. Uh, so that is it in a nutshell. Uh, and it, it didn't take much to, to, to trigger the thing. But uh, David, let's have a look at what Zero Hedge had to say. Yeah, so they're, they're saying, well, actually, this bank followed exactly what the regulator um, thought was wise and prudent banking practice. Um, so he's saying as of uh, December 31, 2022, they had $209 billion in total assets, uh, $175 billion in total deposits. Um, and they had shareholders, Van, Vanguard Group had 11% of the shares, BlackRock at 8, uh, State Street at 5.2%, and the Swedish Pension Fund, um, uh, Electa, had 4.5%. Uh, um, so they were going along with the flow. They were doing, don't fight the Fed, um, and you know, everything was fine. Um, but uh, everything was suddenly not fine. So Zero Heads writes, what happened in 2021? Massive success. Unfortunately, this is also the first step to its demise. Uh, bank deposits uh, nearly doubled with the tech boom. Everyone wanted a piece of the unstoppable new tech paradigm. The SVB's assets rose and almost doubled. The bank's assets rose in value more than 40% with long-dated treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. Um, the rest was seemingly world-conquering new tech and venture capital investments. Most of these low-risk bonds, and this is how they were categorised by the regulator, uh, were held to maturity. Uh, they were following the mainstream rulebook. Low-risk assets uh, to balance the risk in venture capital investments. Um, when the Fed, Federal Reserve raised the rates, they were presumably shocked. The entire asset base of SVB was one single bet low rates and quantitative easing for longer. So when the quantitative easing stopped and the low rates stopped and inflation was not transitory and easy money was not endless, then the rate hikes happened and they got caught um, uh, with the bank suffering massive losses everywhere. Goodbye bonds and uh, mortgage-backed security price. Goodbye tech new paradigm valuations. Hello panic. A good old bank run, despite the strong recovery of SVB shares in January, mark-to-market unrealized losses of 15 billion were almost 10% of the market capitalization of the bank wipeout. So uh, just to correct they, that, that's almost 100%, almost 100% of the oh, market sorry, capitalization of the bank. Yeah, thanks, I beg your pardon. Yeah, so essentially they followed the advice of the regulators. These were very, very safe um, bonds. And what we're seeing here it's a strange effect that the Fed is having on the bond market. Bonds are meant to be boring. Bonds are meant to just be super safe. Well, this is no longer the case. 
Uh, and it wasn't the only bank to uh, suffer problems over the last few days. So here's uh, Silvergate Bank. Uh, this bank is gone as well. It actually was put into liquidation on the 8th of March. Uh, as you can see on their website, the website hasn't been updated to reflect that. It says, uh, effective immediately, Silvergate Bank has made a risk-based decision to discontinue, discontinue the Silvergate Exchange Network. All, all other deposit-related services remain operational, except they don't, as of the 8th of uh, March. Uh, so that one has gone as well. That's a relatively small bank, I think at $14 billion. Uh, and then we had the contagion starting. So uh, Signature Bank of New York, uh, their stock fell by 23%. Uh, after regular seas stricken rival, talking about uh, uh, what, well, what we've just been discussing, they were forced to then, Signature Bank was forced to make a statement saying, don't worry folks, everything's fine. Uh, and so the question is, does anybody believe that? Um, so then what have we got? FDIC uh, creates a deposit insurance National Bank of Santa Clara to protect insured depositors. Uh, again, just to reinforce, this was the initial response uh, we'll have a look at what the Fed is going to do about it in a minute. But this was the initial response. And of course, this is about uh, insured money, not uninsured money. So any money above 250,000 goes. But here in the UK, uh, there's, of course, was an SVB UK subsidiary. Uh, their website is still up. It looks like this. For the bold, driven, unstoppable visionaries. Sadly, it was very much stoppable and they didn't have enough vision to see uh, that it was stoppable. Uh, but this is a statement uh, over the weekend. Uh, Silicon Valley Bank UK update. We're announcing that following conversations with the Prudential Regulatory Authority, there is an intention, barring any intervening event, to put Silicon Valley Bank UK Limited into insolvency from Sunday evening. Uh, so that was that. Was that. Now, We'll come on to what the Bank of England response and the government response to that was in a second. But in the meantime, we started to see stories. Uh, for example, Silicon Valley Bank paid out bonuses hours before seizure. Um, so many people may be a little bit upset about this. Now, these bonuses were for work that was done in 2022, and some may hold the view uh, that that was fair enough because uh, the work was done and uh, the people should get paid. Others may hold the view that actually since the bank has gone under uh, and since many of the clients of the bank are losing their money, then perhaps the employees of the bank should be losing their money as well. Uh, you may have a, a view on that. Uh, and then we had this. Uh, breaking before the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, executives sold a lot of their shares. Uh, so the CEO sold 11% of his shares on February the 27th. Uh, the general counsel, 19% on February the 5th. The chief financial officer sold 32% of his shares on February the 27th. And the chief marketing officer sold 25% of her shares on February the 1st. And this uh, uh, Twitter user saying, unusual. Uh, much of this was part of a trading plan, uh, which was started uh, a previous uh, agreed the previous year so it was uh, uh, perhaps although it's unusual that, that bearing in mind they must have appreciated or maybe they didn't the situation they were in uh, that they were busy selling shares personal shares right up to the point of collapse uh, so then what happened uh, to the stock market well in the UK uh, this happened on Friday so uh, not a massive fall, daily fall, not the biggest daily fall that we've seen by any means, but still significant, 1.67%. But it was the bank's shares that were getting more hammered. So here's NatWest on Friday, 2.5% down. Uh, Lloyd's, 3.27% down. Barclays, 3.67% down. HSBC, just 4.59% down on the day on Friday. But then HSBC came riding to the rescue 
uh, and a deal was done over the weekend between the Bank of England, the Treasury and HSBC. Uh, and so yesterday, uh, Jeremy Hunt said, today the government and the Bank of England have facilitated a private sale of Silicon Valley Bank UK. This ensures the customer, the customer deposits are protected and can bank as normal with no taxpayer support. And HSBC bought the bank for one pound. Now, I wonder what the market response to this was, David. Well, here we go. Uh, here is the latest stock price. It is down 4.3% today, 4.03% sorry, today. So the market's not massively excited. Uh, meanwhile, in the US, uh, we have uh, no federal bailout for collapsed Silicon Valley Bank, uh, says Janet Yellen. Uh, well, actually, we've got a quote from her here. Uh, well, let me say America's economy relies on a safe and sound banking system that can provide for the credit needs of our households and our businesses. And my question, David, is, is that true? And does the actions of the Federal Reserve Bank in the last couple of days demonstrate that to be true? Safe and sound banking system. Well, it, it's, you said there's no, we're not going to bail out um, the uh, Silicon Valley Bank. And indeed, they're not. Uh, what they're going to do instead is they're going to bail out the entire United States banking system. So we have the press release, and it's a stunning document. It's from the Board of Governors, uh, dated March 12th, 2023. Uh, Federal Reserve Board announces it will make available additional funding to eligible depository institutions, banks, uh, to help assure banks have the ability to meet the needs of all of their depositors. So the Fed is funding the entire banking system. It reads, to support American business and households, there we go, well, it must be true, it's in this press release, the Federal Reserve Board on Sunday announced, on Sunday, right, you know it's a panic, on Sunday announced it will, it will make available additional funding to eligible depository institutions to help assure banks have the ability to meet the needs of all their depositors. Um, this action will bolster the capacity of the banking system to safeguard deposits and ensure the ongoing provision of money and credit to the economy. So this is an admission that all of these things were under, were under threat. The Federal Reserve is prepared to address any liquidity pressures that may arise. So this is unlimited money, right? There is no upper limit. They will print as much as they need. Um, let's go and have a look at some more detail. The additional funding will be made available through the creation of a new bank term funding program, BTFP, uh, offering loans of up to one year in length to banks, saving associations, credit unions, and other eligible depository institutions pledging United States, US treasuries, agency debt, and mortgage-backed securities and other qualifying assets as collateral. These assets will be valued at par. Now, these assets are not valued at par. If they were marked to market, they would be very much below par. So they're putting a false valuation on the assets and then the Fed's lending unlimited funds, essentially, against those assets. The BF, uh, BTFP will be an additional source of liquidity against high-quality securities. Okay, we'll come to that. Uh, eliminating an institution's need to quickly sell those securities in times of stress, because obviously if they were forced to sell, they would take such losses that all the institutions would be bankrupt. With the approval of Treasury Secretary and Department of Treasury, we will make available up to $25 billion from the Exchange Stabilisation Fund as a backstop for the BTFP. The Federal Reserve does not anticipate it will be necessary to draw on these backstop funds. Um, and it continues, after receiving the recommendations from the board, uh, uh, 
Treasury Secretary Yellen, after consultation with the President, approved the actions of FDIC to complete its uh, resolutions of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank in a manner that fully de uh, protects all depositors, both insured and uninsured. Does that not sound a bit like a bailout? Well, maybe a little bit. Uh, these actions will reduce stress across the financial system, support financial stability and minimise any impact on business households, taxpayers and the broader economy. Borders monitoring developments, the capital and liquidity positions of the US banking system are strong. That's why we're having an enormous bailout. And the US financial system is resilient. Right? So there's two lies in one sentence. That's quite impressive. Depository institutions may obtain liquidity against a wide range of collateral through a discount window, which remains open and available. In addition, the discount window will apply the same margins used for securities eligible for the BTFP for the increase in lendable value at the window. The board is closely monitoring conditions across the financial system and is prepared to use its full range of tools to support households and businesses and take additional steps as appropriate, which means... As always, the Fed has not run out of ammunition yet. They can bomb the economy some more if they need. And um, that is basically a huge pivot. We're now creating additional funds into the banking system in order to meet the stresses that have suddenly become apparent. And we'll now uh, have a little look as to why these stresses have suddenly become apparent. Because, of course, we've been putting up interest rates. They, they created a lot of money. They created a lot of currency. Um, and this created an increase in prices, incorrectly called inflation. And to cope with inflation, uh, the Fed and all the other banks, having denied that inflation was there for around a year, decided to start to put up interest rates. This is having some effects. Here we see the first of the effects. Federal government, current expenditure, interest payment. Now, this is a bit out of date. This is from the end of December. And you see there that the interest payment is shooting up. It was... 853 billion then. It will be around a trillion now, I would guess. We haven't got the absolute up-to-date figures, but at the end of the at the end of the year it was 853 billion dollars, which is quite a lot of money. Compare that to the tax receipts, which are uh 3.22 trillion, and you see that 26.5% of all United States revenues at the end of the year, the end of last year, we're going on interest payments. And that's just when they started to increase interest rates. It will be worse now. It's probably about a third. At what point does it become untenable? Well, probably quite soon. And if you look at the Federal Reserve total assets, so this is how much money creation they've done. You see this graph and you see the, the, the 2009 spike. That was the huge bailout, the biggest bailout in history back then. And then they did that again, uh, essentially in about 2012 to 2014. And then we got to 2020 and they did about two and a half times more. And, um, and then they, they, they continued printing again, the equivalent of the bailout and more up to 2022, and having taken uh, their balance sheet from one trillion to just under nine, they drew it back by about half a trillion, and of course, they've broken the banking system. And the federal funds rate, you see there, why is all this strange things happening? Well, up until about 2020, there was things called interest rates, and then after, so up to about the year 2000, there was things called interest rates. And then after the year 2000, not so much. And we're trying to put interest rates back up to normal after 
22 years of abnormally low interest rates and things are breaking. Yes, Brian. Well, my, my, yeah, David, my, <clears throat> excuse me, my comment is that uh, we need to be asking exactly who the Federal Reserve is and to whom they're accountable. Uh, because what we've got happening is a very muddy pond here where people are making massive decisions which affect the whole economy, supposedly one of the biggest in the world. And the key question is, you know, who who is the Federal Reserve? To whom are they accountable? And when are they going to be held to account? Now, I know you're going to move on in a minute to the Bank of International Settlements, but we've got exactly the same question. We've got one super bank, the Bank of International Settlements, which is we've covered on the UK column a little while ago, um, is happy to operate in this country under diplomatic immunity to make decisions concerning what other world banks can and can't do. So we've got the problem that we're experiencing at the moment. But the key point is, who are these people and why are they allowed to get away with running a business to their entire satisfaction? And it's a very vague answer because, because obviously the Federal Reserve are not federal. It's a private bank. Uh, and yet they are hugely, they're hugely tied in by regulation, uh, by statute by responsibilities to the Treasury Department, and you get this strange public-private partnership between, between the private bank and the public interest. Um, and it's very difficult to say exactly where one stops and the other starts. Now, um, we, we saw the, uh, the Federal uh, Reserve funds rate. So the plan is, the explanation is, we're going to put up interest rates and we're going to do so aggressively because we're going to conquer inflation. We are the Fed, trust us. I came across this little tool. You might like to have a look at it online. Uh, this is the CME Fed Watch tool. This is looking at the probabilities, looking forward, as to how the market sees what the Fed is going to do. Now, at the moment, the federal funds effective rate is 4.5%. Um, and the, the betting here is in the 22nd of March federal meeting. That will go up by either a quarter or half a percent to 4.75 or 5%. So that's what the current thinking is. If we go forward to September, um, we see that the, 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 main, the main view is that we'll go up to between 5% um, and 5.25%. And so the mainstream thinking currently, um, is that it's only got another half or three quarters of a percent to go. After this, the, the expected interest rates actually come down. So the market isn't believing the Fed that it's going to be aggressive against in, uh, on interest rates and aggressive against inflation via this source. It doesn't believe it can do it. And it's been proven over this last weekend to be correct. The plan, we're going to conquer interest rates by cranking up uh, we're, we're going to conquer inflation by cranking up interest rates, conquer what they call inflation by cranking up interest rates, doesn't work because what happens very quickly is you break the economy. You've got an entire financial sector which is entirely reliant on easy money policy from the Fed, zero interest rate policy over some 20 years. And to try and correct that, things go bang. And we've just seen the go them going bang. And when they go bang, the response is to create more money, uh, more money printing, more easy money from the Fed to bail out the banking system.
Um, there's many other things that come from the easy money policy the Fed's been running. And one of these is, uh, is, is what's called zombie businesses. Now, we've got, you mentioned the Bank of International Settlements. Now, Bank of International Settlements do many things, but they do occasionally produce an interesting report or two. And we have one here. So this is a working paper, number 882. Corporate Zombies, Anatomy and Life Cycle. So they, they introduce the concept. They say there's these things called zombie firms. Uh, firms that are unprofitable but remain in the market rather than exiting through takeover or bankruptcy. They, they, don't make any, they don't make any money. They just continue to exist. And uh, the, the first graph there shows that since 2005 to 2020, there's been much more public debate about these issues. Now, the, the key graph here is up until 2000, um, the, this is the survival probability of zombie firms and non-zombie firms. So before the year 2000, which was before zero interest rate policy, if you had a non-zombie, a, a profitable firm, right, and uh, about 12 years out, you would have a 70% chance of still having that firm in existence, right? But if it was a zombie firm, you would only have around a 50% chance of having that, that firm in existence. So having a zombie firm was, was a bad thing. Do you want to see the equivalent under zero interest rate policy since the year 2000? Here it is. Right? There's no difference. It doesn't matter whether your firm's a zombie or not. Free money, easy money policy will keep, keep all the firms basically in the same position. They're both about, after 12 years, about 55% likelihood of existence. It doesn't make any difference whether it's a zombie or not. So this shows how zero interest rate policy has kept all the deadwood all the deadwood in place, all the sick firms, all the non-performing zombie firms have simply hung around. This is basically a, a brush fire waiting to happen. As interest rates go up, these firms will be made untenable and must have their assets liquidated and redistributed to productive use. This will be another big aspect of what's about to befall us. Um, all because zero interest rate policy has simply built problems in that we're now having to deal with. Um, we've got Zero Hedge here with a very astute comment. They're asking why are um, venture capital icons ganging up and lemonizing uh, the uh, Silicon Valley Bank? He says, well, if your business model relied on quantitative easing, wouldn't you try and trigger the next quantitative easing too? Yeah, well, indeed. Yeah, okay, David, thank you very much for that. Mark, I don't know if you've got any thoughts on this. Um, well, there's so many things you could say. Um, but going back to the Federal Reserve, I just remember covering the House Banking Committee a few years back. And one of the things about the Fed that isn't often discussed is rather than the Fed being regulated, the Fed has become a major regulator of the economy. Uh, it plays a pretty big role in, in enacting regulation and overseeing the economy. So the Fed, uh, while it's nominally owned by the commercial banks, and it probably answers ultimately to the bank for international settlements, the Fed is pretty much as independent as you're going to get as it performs regulating functions rather than being on the receiving end of regulations. 
And uh, the only other thing I would add is <clears throat> its actions with Silicon Valley Bank. <clears throat> one of the things that came out when you were talking, Mike, was it, it uh, the raising of the interest rates depressed economic activity and uh, uh, in, uh, those public offerings uh, became less frequent. It became harder for businesses to get on their feet. So therefore, they grabbed their money out of the bank uh, because they couldn't get it through the other means due to those interest rates. So when the Fed tries to raise interest rates or when it does raise interest rates to control inflation, it also depresses economic activity. And some of those interest rates are costs that are passed on to the end consumer through what's called cost push inflation, while we also have demand pull inflation that David talks about. That's my quote, two cents I would throw in briefly. Okay, brilliant. Thank you for that. Uh, okay, let's move on to Ukraine. Well, well, of course, uh, banking and war go hand in hand. So let's move on to Ukraine and say a couple of days ago, apologies, slightly croaky today, but uh, let's see whether we can get through this. Um, a few days ago, I came across this uh, wonderful headline. Let's have a look. Russia's threat of orphaned Ukrainian children. Theft. Sorry? Theft. Theft. Yes, Russia's theft of theft. Yeah. of orphaned Ukrainian children is genocide. Uh, it is now increasingly clear that Russia's invasion of Ukraine is a war of genocide and um, the Russians are stealing children. Now, we've got a very packed news today, so I'm sure viewers and listeners can go and track this article down. But if you get into it, it says the amazing thing that so many children are being stolen that it's difficult to find the evidence. I'll leave you to think about that. The sentence is in that article. So I went to have a little look at who'd written it. And here's the uh, gentleman concerned, Azim Ibrahim. If we just uh, expand him a little bit, we see that he's a com columnist at Foreign Policy, a research professor at the Strategic Studies Institute at the U.S. Army War College. And the moment I read this, I thought to myself, well, remarkable that this incredible story about the Russians stealing thousands of children and squirreling them back into Russia to be uh, brainwashed into becoming Russian warriors has come out of a man connected to the Street Strategic Studies Institute at the US Army War College. Let's have a look at just a few seconds of the clip where they advertise themselves. I'd like to show it all, but let's just get an impression of what this, uh, this uh, Studies Institute is. SSI's origins start in 1954. Originally created on a recommendation by a California Institute of Technology study and directed by the Secretary of the Army, the Advanced Studies Group was responsible for studying land power and conducting strategic research for the Army. The Advanced Studies Group concentrated its initial efforts in three areas of study, national defense, responsible command, and military science. Back then, its work addressed... So we'll cut that there because it's a little bit tricky to listen to because it's an another cartoon for adults. But if you follow it through, of course, what this organization is doing is uh, briefing the American military, uh, but also it's very active in, let's say, helping produce its own news. However, on the website, I did find an extremely interesting audio interview uh, let's listen to this little clip and see what's said. The subject is a Brussels researcher talking about how the EU, how Europe sees Ukraine. Hello and welcome to this edition of SSI Live. My name is John Denny and I'm a research professor of National Security Studies here at the Strategic Studies Institute, or SSI, at the Army War College. 
It's Tuesday, March 7th, 2023, and we're again going to spend this podcast marking the one-year anniversary of Russia's latest invasion of Ukraine. Today, we'll turn to the European Union and its leading member states. And for this discussion, I'm joined by Dr. Sven Biskin. Sven Biskup is the director of the Europe in the World program at the Egmont Institute, otherwise known as the Royal Belgian Institute for International Relations. He's also a professor at the University of Ghent, where he teaches on Belgian and European foreign and defense policy, and on the grand strategy of the European Union and other great powers. He's the author, co-author, or editor of nine books on European security, Europe's role in the world, and grand strategy, the latest of which is Grand Strategy in 10 Words, published by Bristol University Press in 2021. And we are lucky enough and honored to have Sven here with us visiting Carlisle. Sven, welcome. Thank you, John. What's your sense of what more needs to be done now? So let's pick up the military angle of this, as you mentioned. What more needs to be done in that regard? Uh, And then what are the greatest impediments, you think, to the EU or its leading member states in achieving those goals? We're still stuck in piecemeal decision-making, and after one year, that shouldn't be the case. The discussion moves from one weapon system to another. Now it's tanks, next will be fighter jets. But even then, short-termism prevails. Maybe Ukraine will get 100, 120 tanks over the next two months or so. But then what? What if after a week of intense combat, they lose 90 of them? Are we then ready to to give them 90 new ones? Uh, do, do Do we even have them? So... What I think really needs to be done is for the EU to sit together with the Ukrainian defense staff and make a plan for, let's say, the next five years. What does Ukraine need? How is Europe going to produce it and and transfer it to Ukraine? More of a long-term vision, a long-term approach to what's been done so far. Because I think however this war ends or maybe doesn't end, we will always have to continue to really uh, support uh, Ukraine. Even if hypothetically there's a peace agreement, that will be fragile and we need to build up a strong conventional European armed force as a deterrent against a third Russian invasion. You know, in one of your uh, most recent writings, uh, I read you remarked about Ukraine as previously being a buffer state, now more of a, a front line, a frontier state. Uh, can you kind of unpack that for us a little bit about how maybe how the EU is viewing that specifically? I think the EU it never called Ukraine a buffer state, but that's how I dealt with it as a, an independent state that could have good relations with both the EU and Russia. And even after Russia invaded in 2014, the EU didn't really give up on that idea. It mediated the Minsk agreements between Russia and Ukraine in the hope that if, if these would have been fully implemented, Ukraine would have remained viable as a buffer state. But I think Russia in the end never really wanted that. And by invading again, they now made it clear it's all or nothing. Either the Russians win, and then Ukraine will be the next Belarus. It will be a protectorate, a satellite. Or, as is most likely, fortunately, an independent Ukraine survives. And I would argue that already today, Ukraine now is in reality a member of our Western security architecture. So, Mike, I'll throw that one over to you very quickly. But what I picked up was he's casually talking about maybe five years of war or maybe it doesn't end. It doesn't end. But we should sit down with the Ukrainians. They should tell us what they need to keep this perpetual war going. And the EU should provide it because the EU sees that Ukraine is also is already part of uh, the system. Well, I picked that up, but I also 
picked up the absolute lie from him about the Minsk agreements. He just forgets what Angela Merkel and Francois Hollande said about it. So just forget about that. Right. And what we'll say is, of course, this was the Strategic Studies Institute. So that dialogue will be used to go back and train young American military personnel so that they understand reality when, of course, what is happening is pure propaganda. Well, let's move on to something with a bit more substance. And I'd like to say a big thank you to Alan, one of our viewers, who sent this overview. I'll just read out a few bits from it. People can freeze the screen and read it themselves. But essentially, it says, despite whatever propaganda on BBC, CNN, NBC, etc., here's the reality. Here is the reality of the situation during the Battle of Bakhmud. Relentless Russian artillery bombardment uh, in the north of Bakhmud. Assault detachments of Wagner are attacking on the territory of the uh, Artemovsky plant for the processing of non-ferrous metals. And I can tell you that as we speak, that battle is progressing because the Wagner troops are now underground in that factory system. Um, Judging by the radio communications of the units in the National Guard of Ukraine, Russian troops were attacking the positions of the Armed Forces of Ukraine in the direction of. And then there is a number of places named because the Russians are now starting to break through Ukrainian lines. If we go on, it says... Uh, After cleaning up the eastern outskirts of Bakhmut, active clashes moved to the south and southwest of the city. Uh, Krasny and Kromovo have uh, positional battles. Assault detachments of BMC regularly carry out attacks. Russian artillery, and this is key, Russian artillery and aviation are conducting massive fire on the fortified area of Ukrainian formations. So we're now seeing that the uh, Russian Air Force has been released onto the battlefield. And at the end of this particular page, and again, thank you to our viewer, Alan, I expect the Bakhmut cauldron may now be inescapable for the perhaps 20,000 Ukrainian forces there. I think there's less. I personally think there's less because we're seeing pictures of troops leaving Bakhmut. But of course, they're being slaughtered as they do so. And uh, finally, the two airfields at Chasiv Yar and Kramatorsk may be next for unstoppable uh, hypersonic ballistic missile destruction. So you can see it on the map, but do not believe your lying eyes, say British Sky TV in their nightly summary. So a very good summing up by Alan, and thank you very much. Let's put a little bit of um, um, mapping substance to this, and I am very grateful for all the Uh, sites where I've been able to take material because we're not getting the truth by the BBC or the UK Ministry of Defence. We've got to go to amateurs who are taking the time to do it. So here we can see Bakhmut encircled and the light blue area is the steel factory that Alan was talking about. And unlike the um, steel works in Mariupol, where the Russians simply waited and left the Ukrainians underground. In this case, the uh, Wagner troops have gone into the uh, depths under this factory to fight the Ukrainians underground. Uh, This is a picture here showing you the wings, if you like, of the encirclement north and south of Bakhmut. And the red arrows giving an indication of the fact that the Russians are moving forward. On the right-hand side of the screen, you can see that they're they're moving along one of the highways in order to increase the speed of the advance. But at the moment, there's definitely a thaw that started, and any non-metalled roads are virtually impossible 
even for many tracked vehicles. South of Bachma, we've got exactly the same encirclement uh, uh, happening at, uh, at Divka. And again, you can see the scale of this. This is another fortified city of the Ukrainians, but it is being heavily pounded by the Russian forces and uh, fully encircled. Uh, we've got um, some interesting uh, hypersonic missile attacks that have occurred around uh, Avdivka. One of them is producing a report that a NATO supported headquarters was hit and NATO personnel were killed. Um, can't confirm that at the moment, but there's been a number of reports. And uh, also uh, to the north of Advdivka, apologies, um, we've got control of Vasily, uh, which has happened, which has been very significant for the Russians in uh, pushing forward. Uh, this is one of the new explosions caused by the Russians where they've now turned their attention on transport infrastructure in Ukraine, so a rail line destroyed, but just as an indication. Uh, if we have a look at what um, UK defence intelligence is doing, uh, they are doing some pretty crude smearing propaganda. So this is their report saying, well, of course, the hierarchy, the top politicians in Russia are not sending their children to fight. The troops are coming from largely poor areas. Uh, if we ask a simple question, how many Western politicians are sending their sons and daughters to fight? I think we will find the answer is very, very few. So uh, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. Um, but it's very easy to go looking for material that is talking about how the US also uses uh, poorer recruiting areas to fill its quotas, and it's doing so with increasing desperation, <clears throat> excuse me, as the Americans show that it is very difficult for them to recruit troops. In the US, uh, aside from training troops to fight, uh, we've now got the full woke agenda. And I'm just teasing a bit here by putting in this latest one that the most important thing for American troops is that they can tattoo themselves, although they can't get away with this gentleman's forearms. That's not approved. Uh, here is the US instructions. But let's come back to uh, defense intelligence. And I discovered this over the weekend that I thought was very, very interesting indeed, that basically they have a probability yardstick so they can use language, but it has a probability attack attached to it. So if we choose likely or probable, uh, that's got somewhere between a 55% and 75% chance of happening. Why is this significant? Well, if we go to one of their reports, uh, we can have a look at this paragraph. It says Ukrainian forces hold the west of the town. This is in Bakhmut and have demolished key bridges with Ukrainian units able to fire from fortified buildings to the west. This area has become a killing zone likely making it highly challenging. Now, of course, we now know that when they say likely, they're saying there's a probability of 55, 75%. So they've quantified a high risk for the Russian deaths. But this is how duplicitous this uh, appalling organization is. If we look down here at the last sentence, it says, however, the Ukrainian force and their supply lines to the West remain vulnerable. So now we choose language that doesn't have a quantified high risk for, for the uh, Ukrainians, even though the truth is they're being slaughtered.
So here's the independent warning us that there's been a rise in uh, the use of deep fake technology for psyops. And interestingly enough, if you read this article, you'll find people in the States highly critical of the idea that the US military is going to be using deep fake. So I suppose we should have some comfort for that. But um, let's have a look at this little video, uh, which is uh, Ursula von der Leyen with Trudeau. And we've also got a bit of a clip with Ben Wallace, and it leads into a very emotional scene. I've run these clips together to try and show the people creating and promoting the war and what the end result is. I will say that the, the worst of the sex scenes have been taken out of the first part of the clip. You'll understand when you watch. Just ahead of International Women's Day tomorrow, I'm struck by the fact that we're here not only with the President of the European Union, uh, but also with our Deputy Prime Minister, our Minister of uh, Defence and our Minister of Foreign Affairs, who all happen to be strong uh, women leaders that uh, is always a pleasure to see. Every day, their expertise and dedication makes the future brighter for people on both sides of the Atlantic. Ursula, encore une fois, c'est un grand plaisir de t'avoir ici avec nous aujourd'hui. À vous la parole. Thank you very much, um, Prime Minister, dear Justin. I've been very much looking forward to this visit. Indeed, Canada is one of the European Union's most trusted partners. We share the same vision of the world, the same democratic values. We believe in the power of cooperation, solidarity, and multilateralism. We are not only partners, we are true friends. And it is as close friends that we worked together through this last year, that we coordinated our support, for example, to the brave people of Ukraine, united in a common purpose. До 24 лютого в мене було звичайне життя. Я займалася спортом, в мене є сім'я, донька і чоловік. Але коли прийшла біда в нашу державу, я не бачила іншого шляху, ніж йти на захист українського народу. А я рахую, кожна сім'я повинна прийняти участь у захисті, тому вибір я зупинила на собі. Вирішальним фактором, чому я зупинилася у лавах Збройних сил України, було саме загибель моїх друзів, які в першу чергу відгукнулися на це лихо, що спіткало нашу країну. Тому я вважаю, що ну, також я подаю приклад іншим дорослим людям, Тому що те, що показують по телебаченню, це одне, а коли ти знаходишся в епіцентрі арт-обстрілу, це зовсім інше. І коли поруч з тобою займаються 19-річні діти, а через три неділі ці діти підуть на, на передову, замість того, щоб продовжувати своє навчання. Допоможіть врятувати! Help to survive. 
Now, for people listening, the young girl, Ukrainian soldier at the end, uh, was the emotion real as she described why she was going to fight? Uh, was that real? Yes. Was she reading a script? Yes. But she broke down and she couldn't finish it. So a very young, distraught woman encouraging presumably other young Ukrainian women to go and fight the UK, the US's war in Ukraine to die. So let's have a look at some analysis by history legends. This clip I had to bring on to the news today because let's consider these videos in context. This young woman, uh, the British Ministry of Defence wants to go and die. They've killed all the young men or they are killing the young men in Ukraine. We've now got boys and old men on the battlefield. The women are to be next. Let's look at what the British Ministry of Defence wants these young men, young men and women to go and do. Let's have a look at this analysis. My friends, I have difficult things to announce you. It's official. East Bahmut has fallen. As you can see on this map, Russian forces have captured everything on the east bank of the Bahmutka River. In this video, you can see a Russian war reporter advancing through the rubble alongside Wagner PMC fighters in the eastern outskirts of Bahmut. Judging by the footage, judging by all the destruction, heavy fighting took place there, intense artillery shelling. Not a single meter was spared. Even worse, the orchestra is reportedly storming downtown Bahmut as well as the Azam factory. In this video, you can see assault detachments of the Wagner PMC reaching the famous Soviet T-34-85 tank monument in Bakhmut, and where they then planted their flag in celebration. This tank monument is geolocated right here on the map, only a couple hundred meters away from the river separating the town in two. And shortly after, Prigozhin, the head of the Wagner PMC, went to pose in front of the captured monument, essentially right at the line of contact between the two armies. A pretty ballsy move and a very effective PR stunt. And here's the video version where he says, Take the old people and young ones and send me normal combat-ready units. Send me all the guys from Zaporozhye, from Liman. We need to deal with you now. He says this because a couple days earlier, he shows allegedly some of the latest Ukrainian soldiers that were captured by his forces. As you can imagine, this battle is not going exactly like Ukraine had expected. But I wanted to tell you about this video. However, after rewatching it, I noticed that one part of the video was missing. A full minute was removed. The video is now 24 minutes and 30 seconds. When back then, before the edit, it was 25 minutes, 30 seconds. What could possibly have been so dangerous to say that they had to trim the video? Luckily, someone saved the part that was missing. <laughs> Да, что лишнего? Шуги сыра на статью одна опять забыла. 
Да мне похуй, ну я что. Уля мне два раза перезвонил, Свобода слова есть в Украине. Я все равно контракт, мы еще три года. Мне еще вот контракт, она никуда не отпустит. By this article, Ukrainian infantrymen told the Kyiv independent of unprepared, poorly trained battalions being thrown into the front line meat grinder to survive as best they could with little support from armored vehicles, mortars, artillery, drones and tactical information. Of the 20,000 defenders of Bahmut, on the 4th of March it was reported that only 4,000 remained in the city, some sort of rear guard and probably much less by now. So we say to viewers and listeners, do your own research to uh, uh, confirm what's uh, been put forward by history legends. My own experience to date is that he's been extremely accurate in the reporting. But this is the reality of the slaughter on the battlefield. And the British Ministry of Defence is now keen to get young Ukrainian women killed uh, fighting uh, in a position that they can't possibly do without proper training. So. I'll leave, I'll leave it there. I don't know whether you want, want to make any comment, Mike, but uh, I think it's utterly no. disgusting. And uh, let's just end on this, because, of course, in the little clip of the love-in with um, Trudeau and Ursula von der Leyen, what did she say that they were working to a common purpose? And I found it interesting that the World Economic Forum has come out with this document. It's back in 2021, but nevertheless is new to me. Data for common purpose, leveraging consent to build trust. And if we get into the uh, forward here, what they're essentially saying is trust us. We are going to be doing more to share data worldwide, but we're only doing it in your best interest. So we'll leave it there. Yeah. OK, well, let's uh, move on then, because Rishi Sunak and I believe Ben Wallace as well, uh, are, well, Rishi was on a plane over the weekend heading to the United States. He's en route. He was en route to San Diego. He's looking forward to meeting uh, Biden and also the Australian Prime Minister, uh, outlining how we will defend our people and values for generations to come. Uh, so uh, here's uh, him meeting the Australian Prime Minister yesterday. Uh, and don't they look happy together? Uh, so what's this all about? Well, it's about AUKUS, of course. Now, to remind everybody what AUKUS is, it's this uh, trilateral uh, defence partnership between Australia, uh, the UK and the United States. So the UK, the United States and Australia have agreed a landmark defence and security partnership will defend our shared interests around the world, is how it was reported uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, this is what Boris Johnson said at the time. AUKUS will preserve security and stability around the world, will generate hundreds of highly skilled jobs as we level up. Now, the question is then, what was the Chinese response to this? Because clearly this is all about China and not about anything else. Uh, so AUKUS risks severely damaging regional peace and intensifying the arms rates. Even the French were hacked off with it because, of course, the, this was all about submarines initially as one part of the as the main part of AUKUS. Uh, but the French thought they had a deal with the Australians for submarines. And so they called it uh, a real stab in the back. Uh, we'd established a relationship of trust there's that word again with Australia. This trust has been uh, betrayed. Now, uh, what is Rishi announcing? He's announcing five billion pounds uh, of additional defence spending. Three billions of that is going towards AUKUS uh, and the rest is going to other things, including uh, 1.9 billion pounds, Brian, uh, to replenish uh, ammunition stocks that we have handed over to Ukraine. 
uh, apparently that is sufficient to replenish them. Um, of the uh, new money, 1.98 billion will be spent this year and 2.97 billion next year. Uh, and uh, well, there we go. At the same time, he has announced uh, the new integrated defence review, which is taking place at the moment. In fact, uh, that's going to be announced this afternoon in the House of Commons by James Cleverley, who, of course, is the foreign minister, not the defence minister. But apparently, uh, Ben Wallace is not available in the Commons to do that. So Cleverley is doing it. Let's just remind ourselves what the integrated operating concept is about. It's about being offensive rather than defensive. So let's look at the actual language that was used. Uh, the central idea of the integrated operating concept is to drive the conditions and tempo of strategic activity rather than responding to the actions of others. So we've got to create the war. Uh, we don't defend ourselves from the war. Uh, it goes on. The old distinction between foreign and domestic defense is increasingly irrelevant. When fake news appears to originate not abroad but at home, it gains credibility and reach, stoking confusion, disagreement, division and doubt in our societies. This has been particularly evident with significant uptake in disinformation and misinformation during the coronavirus crisis. So uh, the enemy is not just abroad, it's also at home. Uh, home is no longer a secure sanctuary, whence we may choose to launch interventions unhindered. Away is no longer a regional horizon, but a global one involving space and the electromagnetic spectrum. So the original uh, defense review, integrated defense review, was talking about hybrid warfare about the perpetual warfare as well. It, we're going to double down on that notion. Uh, now, the uh, Integrated Review 23 uh, sets out a number of additional priority uh, areas. Uh, the creation, as of today, of a new National Protective Security Authority within MI5. Uh, and this is going to provide a wide range of UK businesses and other organizations with immediate access to expert security advice. So let's bring MI5 right into your company. Uh, establish an economic defense initiative to strengthen the power of our sanctions enforcement. Uh, doubling funding for government-wide China capabilities program, including investing in Mandarin language tra uh, training and uh, diplomatic China expertise. So in other words, it's not just Russia that's the problem. Now Britain's taken quite a positive uh, view of China over the previous uh, Tory administrations, but this current one shifting its position with respect to China, setting up a new integrated security fund, which is going to replace the conflict security and stability fund. Uh, so that's going to be an interesting development as we watch it uh, uh, move forward. So that's what uh, Rishi is up to in uh, the United States today. I think, believe he's meeting Biden today uh, and uh, we'll see what announcements come later on. So not, nothing about peace and peaceful trade. It's uh, quite the opposite. War and more war. Yes. Okay, if you like what the UK Column does, you'd like to support us, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. There are options to help us out there. Very much appreciated. You could, could pick something up at the UK Column shop. But please do share material you find on the various platforms. Now, very quickly, I just want to mention the event that was taking place in Exeter over the weekend. Uh, gather, people gathering in Exeter to talk to the general public uh, about things like uh, central bank digital currencies, uh, about Agenda 2030, uh, the Green New Deal, World Economic Forum, and so on. Uh, we've got a little bit of video here uh, of just a couple of people that were involved in that, just explaining why they had chosen to take part in this event. 
The main reason why we're here is mainly because of censorship and being deplatformed on Facebook and Instagram. A while back, we'd normally be able just to put up a post and all of our friends and everyone would be able to see that. But because of that censorship, we, we are now here so we can bring that information to the public. You know, Our, our big concern is um, in regards to mainstream media which um, they are projecting one side of the story and hiding another side of the story, um, saying things in, in fluffy climate change language, but it's in you know disguise of a very corrupt plan that they're looking to introduce. And we're just here to give that information to people, um, not tell them what to think, just, just to give them information so they can make the decision for themselves. So as you can see on my hat, we're time to wake up Devon. And this was pulled together off the back of um, the Devon Climate Emergency Plan. So back in December, I had a phone call saying, have you seen the plan? And I said, no, I haven't. I took a look at it and I thought, I really don't like this plan. There's some really nasty things. Some of it looks very fluffy to the public, but there's some really draconian things in there. So uh, there was a meeting the following night about it in our council. So I decided to assemble the team together and we hit the council. And then after the meeting, we decided to pull everybody in and create a team where we had people that were going to fight the council, people that were researching. We put a really good leaflet together and we went out and leafleted. Uh, we went to another meeting, which was a Devon Climate Emergency meeting, and we kicked up quite a storm. And they invited us back for another meeting on January the 31st. Um, and we assembled a team of people called Seven Concerned Citizens. And you can find that online. And that talks about what they spoke about in the meeting. We're hoping to hear back from them. And if we don't, we will be going back to them and attending the meeting and giving them some more, giving them some more sort of grief. Because we're not going to stop. So I yeah. think that's great. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. David, have you got any thoughts on that briefly? Well, I'm just wondering how many councils uh, have a similar action plan. I suspect all of them. Uh, so I would encourage viewers to have a look at their own local authority and see yeah. what they're up to in this area. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, David, let's uh, move on to Fernethy. Yeah, so anyone who hasn't uh, seen the Fernethy conference, please see that's on our website. It explains the background to this. And basically, we've got tens of thousands of little Glaswegian girls went through a very abusive institution um, over a period of 30 years. Um, this is, uh, we're, we're now uh, digging further, looking for information, and we've made some progress. Um, so we put out a, a Freedom of Information request, referred to the Tom Shaw report, Historic Abuse uh, Systemic Review, which said, quote, the law specified in varying degrees of detail what should be monitored and inspected in residential schools and children's homes to ensure the children's welfare and safety. Visits by various people, professional and lay, and records were the main approaches for monitoring and inspection uh, mentioned in the legislation, and uh, some visits were to take place at specified intervals. With that in mind, we asked the following question of... Uh, Glasgow City Council. Uh, therefore, if you do not hold records for these inspections and monitoring visits at Fornetti required by law over its 30 year of operation as a residential school, then please state whether it is the case that you never held them because they never existed or that you do not hold them because they have been destroyed. If they have been destroyed, please provide the documentation showing when and by whom this was authorised and why. The, the response was amazing. Glasgow City Council um, came back and said, 
uh, we are unable to comply with your request um, uh, under the Act. Fonetti House was not registered as a statutory residential school. Our understanding is that it operated as a respite home for children to take holidays or breaks. This means that at that time, it would not have been subject to inspection. So we're talking somewhere between 20 and, we don't have a precise num number, somewhere between 20 and 50,000 children over a period of 30 years went through an abusive institution with no inspection at all in 30 years. This seems surprising. So we've got a few questions that come from this. Um, we're wondering how was it that a residential establishment for young girls run by the state could go without any regime of inspection for 30 years? Um, we were also wondering whether all such residential convalescent homes, because Glasgow Corporation had many of them, uh, were left uninspected or was uh, Fornetti unique? Um, we're wondering why does Glasgow City Council hold the view that Fornetti House is exempt from inspection um, when the reports from its legal pre predecessor, Corporation of Glasgow, place Fonetti in a category, residential schools, that did require regular and varied forms of inspection. We're asking, even if Fonetti House was indeed a respite and holiday facility, and we can find no evidence that it was ever regarded as such, why would this exempt it from inspection? Furthermore, we're asking, is it credible that the Corporation of Glasgow and Strathclyde Regional Council never, during a combined period of 30 years, sought to establish whether the place they were sending thousands of girls was actually safe. And finally, we're wondering, should Glasgow City Council's position that Fonetti was exempt from inspection due to its use prove to be incorrect? Is there something else to be uncovered here? Is this an intentional act or a perverse omission? So you can see we have many more questions. We will be reporting back on that when we have more answers. Okay, and uh, very, very briefly, I just want to mention this. This is from uh, Cornwall Council uh, and uh, their campaign, hashtag one, two, three or more. Uh, this is all about LGBTQ plus adoption and fostering week. Uh, but in fact, it's not just about that. It's about, uh, it should not just be about one week, but every week is how they're describing it. Um, so uh, I want to say thank you to the person who uh, sent this tr through to us. Uh, this is uh, part of their comment. Uh, this is Gillian. Uh, according to the Foster Talk page on Facebook, latest figures show that England already uh, one in six adoptions last year were to same gender couples. In Scotland, it was one in 11, but in Wales are really stepping up and it's one in four. Uh, I note their use of the word gender rather than sex. So same gender, not same sex. Uh, they add uh, current government statistics prove the growing need for more LGBTQ plus people to consider adoption or fostering. And she's, uh, Gillian is asking why, and I'm David, I'm just gonna very briefly make a suggestion as to why. Uh, here's Bertrand, a quote from Bertrand Russell, uh, the social psychologist of the future will have a number of classes of school children uh, on whom they will try different methods of producing an unshakable conviction that snow is black. Various results will soon be arrived at. First, that the influence of the home is obstructive. Second, that not much can be done unless indoctrination begins before the age of 10. And I'm just going to ask the question, is, that, is this about actually creating uh, a, a generation of LGBTQ plus uh, young people? Uh, is that why there would be so much of an effort to place foster children with LGBTQ plus families? Uh, and 
and uh, well, that's the first question. It's an excellent question. I mean, the the, the there are many concerns over this. The the most violent and unstable um, uh, personal relationships tend to be in lesbian relationships. Uh, there is considerable evidence to show that this is the case. And of course, that would be ignored. Um, we've seen several very tragic uh, examples in Scotland and elsewhere of these things going very badly wrong. There seems to be um, a, a disregard for safeguarding because it goes contrary to the political agenda. Have we not seen that before? Or is that not the excuse as to what happened in Rotherham and elsewhere? Um, surely we can learn that what comes first is the welfare, safety, and best interests of the children. And we should be looking at it in that way, not as some form of social experiment. Yeah, D David, I'll just add there, if I may. Um, I noticed that the um, promotional image there was of a blonde-haired, blue-eyed little girl. And uh, many years ago, I had uh, some very information interesting information given to me by uh, a couple who had tried to adopt and uh, in that process they'd had a particular person with them with a book with photographs of children and they were fascinated that a very very high percentage of the children were indeed blonde-haired blue-eyed children and this meant that uh, they raised questions about how there could be a disproportionate number of these types of children in the adoption list. Um, the answers they received were less than satisfactory, but it made that potential mum and dad very, very uncomfortable at uh, what they'd got into, essentially. Well, in the sense that these children were the most sellable? Uh, that's exactly right. You've, right. you've taken it down to basics, but uh, this was a question of which ones, which types of children can they market the most, you know, the most Successful. successfully yeah. yeah okay uh mark apologies for the wait but let's uh, finally come so to i think david's trying to say something there. sorry david did you want to well it's just that uh, i've i've come across exactly the same story in israel a lot of the russian immigrant girls who went into israel were blonde and they discovered that uh it's best not to have a blonde boyfriend because if there is children uh, they would be running into problems with the state seizing the children. Okay. okay. Thank you for that. Mark. Yes. Uh, you might recall uh, in January, for UK column, I went to the Texas state capitol in Austin to cover the legislature a little bit. And at that time, Senator Bob Hall had a bill about Texas and at least one other state forming a state compact. That way they could enforce federal law more readily at the border. But that's a long-term and somewhat problematic approach. Uh, my sources for a long time have been saying we need to be getting to the, the brass tax. We need to be able to repel the invasion due to the large numbers of illegal immigrants coming over in short periods of time. And it just so happens that Matt Schaefer, a state rep out of Texas, out of Tyler, has unveiled a bill, uh, out, uh, excuse me, House Bill 20. There's also House Bill 7. But this is the Texas Tribune we're seeing on the screen. Uh, talking about House Bill 20 mainly. There, there's also number seven, which is similar, but not quite as gritty. Uh, House unveils bill giving state authority to repel, there's the key word, 
and return migrants crossing from Mexico. And the people, the ranch hands that have been uh, mining, minding and, excuse me, minding the border and patrolling the border, monitoring the border for private ranchers, the ones I've been talking to in Arizona and Texas have been saying, this is the bottom line. We need to be able to repel the invasion. There's just too many people coming over in too short a time. We don't have time to go through elaborate gymnastics dealing with all sorts of other issues. That way we can get a handle on issues and people that really deserve asylum can then get it. But otherwise it's just too chaotic and it's just too overwhelming. And so we have this bill now that is looking the right way. Now going on to the next slide here, this is also from the Texas Tribune article, which is a liberal leaning um, online newspaper. It, it quotes here, Roberto Lopez, senior advocacy manager for the Beyond Borders program at the Texas Civil Rights Project, called uh, Representative Schaefer's bill, bill, mainly House Bill 20, quote, the most dangerous proposal we have ever seen on border issues, which is a real stretch in terms of his comment. Then he added a new military force under uh, Governor Greg Abbott, potentially staffed by vigilantes deputized as law enforcement authorities, get that, will provide no protection to border communities whatsoever, Lopez tried to say is what the way I would have wrote it, trying to solve what is fundamentally a humanitarian crisis with a full frontal military response shows a reckless disregard for the safety of the people in our state and a fundamental misunderstanding of the root causes of the issues at our border. Uh, what a way to pontificate. Uh, anyway, moving on, uh, this uh, goes on to uh, quote uh, Cesar Hernandez, an immigration attorney and law professor at Ohio State, saying that any attempt by Texas to enforce immigration law would face lawsuits. Well, a lot of ranchers would rather have the state facing lawsuits than their property and life and limb facing threats every day, which is happening now. Well, this Cesar Hernandez went on to say, he also said if the proposal would be adopted into law, it would send a strong message that Texas is not interested in helping asylum seekers. Now, asylum, I looked it up, of course, again. Asylum is a very limited thing, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But let's let's move on to this one. Uh, that comment a, a couple slides ago, it talked about uh, vigilantes. Well, what is a vigilante? A vigilante is a member of a self-appointed group, self-appointed group of citizens who undertake law enforcement in their community without legal authority. So under House Bill uh, 20, there is legal authority granted even to citizens uh, as well as law enforcement to repel the invasion. So in no way is this vigilanteism at all. You'd have to have an absence of legal sanction, an absence of legal authority with people literally taking the law into their own hands to have anything even close to a vigilante. So this is the way all this hyperbole uh, is dished out by these so-called civil rights organizations to cloud these issues, which otherwise could be fairly clearly and straightforwardly solved. Now, this is a picture of Representative Matt Schaefer, a Republican, that is uh, the main thrust behind House Bills 20 and 7. Uh, that's just a quick picture of him, what he looks like. And uh, moving on from there, uh, we have a little bit about the bill itself. And uh, without getting into it too much, the findings of the bill, and this is sort of the rationale for it, it's called the Border Protection Unit Act. The security of Texas and the sovereignty of the state has been threatened 
by the deadly activities of transnational cartels operating throughout the state and the U.S., many Texans have lost the peaceful use and enjoyment of their properties due to criminal activities along the border. Lethal quantities of opioids such as fentanyl are being trafficked into Texas and beyond, resulting in the poisoning deaths of thousands of people throughout the country. Texas is in such imminent danger as will not admit of delay and now declares authority under Article 1, Section 10 of the U.S. Constitution, which is the part about um, the uh, U.S. government can help the states in repelling invasions. The legislature, acting with the governor, has the solemn duty to protect and defend the citizens of Texas. And we can keep going from there. Digging into the bill a little bit more, the unit chief created under this bill may employ law-abiding citizens without a felony conviction to participate in unit operations and functions, but such persons may not have arresting authority. See, there's no vigilanteism going on here. Authority is granted, but they don't have arresting authority unless trained and specifically authorized by the governor. So there is a caveat for citizens who are authorized to take part in the first place to then have arresting authority, but it takes a special action. The unit created under this bill shall, shall acquire equipment and facilities and conduct training necessary to full, fulfill the operational intelligence, communication, logistics, and administrative duties set forth by the unit chief to, inclear, to include excuse me, land, air, and maritime responsibilities. So this is land, air, and water. And moving on from there, we're just kind of sweeping through this. Uh, it also includes construction and maintenance of physical barriers. This is what was cut off when Trump left the White House and Biden came in. The unit shall oversee the construction and maintenance of walls, fences, and other physical barriers along the border with Mexico in order to enhance safety and security. The unit chief or his designee is authorized to negotiate and inquire, acquire the necessary right-of-way, leases, permissions, materials, and services needed to erect and maintain these physical barriers. And going on from there. Um, this is interesting, uh, very notable. Under the section uh, 411537, the Article 1, Section 10 invocation, the constitutional invocation, to the extent consistent with the U.S. and Texas constitutions and federal and state law, in the event that the legislature finds or the governor has declared a state of invasion, which he did late last year, and, and therefore finds the U.S. is under imminent danger, the unit unit chief shall be authorized uh, to order the unit to take the following actions, and that is to deter and repel persons attempting to enter the state of Texas illegally at locations outside these established ports of entry uh, to the extent consistent with U.S. and Texas law and so on. So this is seen as very, very significant. And it's very important to add that House Bill 20 and House Bill 7 guys were put in at the 11th hour this past Friday, which was the deadline for any more legislation to get in the pipeline in the state Texas legislature. This, this legislature meets every other year for about five months through the end of May, and there's a deadline beyond which no more legislation can be put in the pipeline. But this legislation just made the deadline at the 11th hour this past Friday. So it's very significant, and it, it again, it does press a lot of the buttons that the most uh, um, outspoken critics against Governor Abbott have been saying all along that we need citizens involved and we need to be able to actually repel this invasion. It's just too much to deal with in terms of legalities like asylum and things like that and many other logistics. 
And it's also very important to note, and this is kind of an exclusive, meanwhile, about a week ago, House Bill 1359, I don't have a slide for this, House Bill 1359, which would enable Texans to vote on whether they would favor secession from states, that got into the legislative pipeline about a week before that deadline. And critics of that bill don't believe it has a chance. They don't think the legislature or the Speaker of the House will allow it to come to the full floor for a vote. The, the vote by the legislature would then enable Texans to vote na nationwide in a referendum as to whether they would favor secession from the United States. A lot of the people that are strong on border security don't believe the bill has a chance, but the Texas nationalist movement that is a major force behind the secession bill, HB 1359, they believe the bill does have a chance. So that'll be an interesting one to watch along with these new border security bills. But uh, I believe you guys wanted to move on from there. I don't know if you have any comments before we talk about an Arizonan that got himself in trouble. Uh, well, we're more or less out of time. Mark, so let's move on with the with the uh, the 73-year-old rancher. Yes, uh, uh, this 73-year-old this rancher, um, he um, got himself in some major trouble because he tr tried to defend his property. And uh, let me see here. Um, his name is uh, George Allen Kelly, 73. He lives near Nogales, uh, Arizona, uh, right by the border, where I've uh, visited a couple times for news work and, and other things. And uh, he's a rancher who lives near the border, as this uh, Associated Press piece is showing here. He's on charge. He's been charged with first-degree murder. It, this was actually late January, early February, fatally shooting a man identified as a Mexican national. and. Uh, uh, Mr. Kelly's bail, get this, was set at one million. Now, since then, George Allen Kelly has been has seen his uh, charge reduced to second degree murder. It's no longer first degree murder. But what basically happened, in a very tight nutshell, there's there's another headline here out of Fox News: Arizona rancher held on one million dollar bond, firing warning shots, and armed men reportedly pointed AK-47s right at him. That's important to note here. But what basically happened is he heard one shot, he went to investigate. He said he saw men uh, around the perimeter of he and his wife's house uh, with camo on, uh, donning AK-47s. He fired some warning shots in the air after he had heard one shot. That's what made him go look and see these people to begin with. He fired warning shots in the air above head level, he said, and he called the Border Patrol to investigate and the Sheriff's Department. And they came out and looked, they didn't find anything. And then later on, he found one dead body of a Mexican national, a 48-year-old man who's had trouble with the law before and has been deported before. They found his dead body. And then when uh, Mr. Kelly called the authorities again to come back out, they decided that he was responsible for shooting dead this Mexican national that they found dead on Kelly's property. So then they arrested Mr. Kelly on that charge. And what's particularly outrageous is, to the best of my understanding at this point in time, his wife is being left alone at the ranch. Maybe she's called friends. Maybe she's went to visit relatives by this time. But initially, she was left alone at the ranch while her husband, her only protection, has been in prison on a $1 million bond. Um, so it just shows you how quickly and easily the authorities blame uh, ranch owners and people defending their property rather than the invaders. It's an incredible mindset that hopefully will be broken. And a lot of people in Texas fear, this is my last note on this, 
a lot of people in Texas fear that a lot of Texas ranchers are going to are going to be completely fed up and they're going to act the same way or much more seriously than Mr. Kelly. And there'll be a whole rash of these things going on. And that's why a lot of people that I've talked to believe that Texas is finally passing legislation to repel the invaders, because otherwise you're going to have a lot more incidents just like this one in Arizona happening in Texas, uh, sources are telling me. So that's the key stuff for the border at this point in time that uh, provides an update of what I covered earlier in the year. Then uh, can we just talk about uh, the issue of election reporting and whether the uh, regulators in the United States are going to, uh, well, as this headline says, act against Rupert Murdoch? Yeah, this is what, I mean, a lot of people have heard that the uh, Fox News is in trouble for so-called election lies about the 2020 election, implying that Biden wrongly and fraudulently became president and Trump had the election stolen from him. Of course, I've talked on this show about evidence in Georgia, especially some in Michigan, some in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Arizona, but especially in Georgia, that indicates the election, at least in Georgia, really was stolen. The evidence is actually overwhelming. And the um, the idea that the FCC would get involved is kind of strange. I, I bring this up in part because I have a personal view on it. Uh, I was invited to speak next month at a gathering in Austin, and I think I'm going to accept the uh, um, the invitation to talk about the mass media and talk about how uh, the FCC, if, if it was going to get involved in media at all, should be talking about how in 2020 there was no balance whatsoever reporting on the COVIDocracy, reporting on the COVID threats, reporting on uh, any threats or problems that the uh, mRNA jabs might, might cause. And now we know they're causing a great deal of adverse reactions and deaths that need further uh, investigation. This is what the FTC should be talking about or investigating is the absolute lack of balance in the media, especially about COVID. And um, instead they're they're uh, possibly gonna throw their weight at Fox about so-called election lies, when in fact, much of what Fox did report was valid. Some of it may be a little bit challengeable but it's a complete misplacement of the FCC's powers if the FCC follows through with it. And we'll just leave it at that. Okay, thank you, Mark. Uh, David, have you got a brief comment? Uh, just a little breaking news. Um, bank contagion, First Republic Bank um, in the New York Stock Exchange is down 85% in share value in the last five days, most of it in the last couple of hours. Uh, so the contagion has not been stopped by the uh, promise of uh, infinite money by the Fed and the problems go on. OK, well, we're going to have to watch that very closely. OK, well, we, we're just going to end on one humorous cartoon. Uh, this is the Russian view of the West, and I don't think that they're far off on this one. But uh, a lot to be discussed around what's in that image. But. Uh, there we are. That was we'll the keep that for extra then. Yes. Well, we have got a packed extra. Do we do this following one, Mike? Perhaps if, we should. If you want, if go you want on. Let's just do it. Uh, so, so uh, we've got a tweet here, and it says yet again: UK column puts BBC News, Sky News, Channel Four News, and ITV News effectively your sorry asses to shame. We'll leave it there, and uh, I'll just add that in the um, history legends clip. Uh, where there were Ukrainian soldiers talking, I should have said um, 
for people who couldn't see the tra transcript on screen, that those young soldiers were saying that they were being sent raw recruits with maybe three days training. They'd only fired a couple of magazines and those raw troops were dying very quickly on the front lines in Bakhmud. All of this orchestrated, all of this slaughter orchestrated by the West. But do have a look at those clips again if you didn't quite pick up on it during the news. Back in a couple of minutes. Thanks for joining us. Bye-bye.